Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Romans chapter 5 begins with a key verse. It says, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is going to go on in chapter 5 to boast. Now, he told us back in chapter 3, verse 27, that boasting is excluded from what we as human beings should do. And in chapter 4, verse 2, we're told that Abraham had no ground for boasting. And yet here, Paul is going to speak of boasting. But there's a difference. Here, he is boasting in God's character and what God has done in Jesus. He's not boasting in himself. So we don't boast about ourselves, our own accomplishments, and what we can do, but we can boast. We can brag about the Lord our God and what God has done for us. He uses the term reconciled. Reconciled speaks of a broken relationship made right. In Romans chapter 4, Paul argued through the Jewish patriarch Abraham for why Jesus is who he is and why this is God's plan and why we should accept it. Now he's going to argue that through Adam, the father of all humanity. Sin came by one man, Adam, in the Garden of Eden. Now the solution comes by one, Jesus, who is a second type of Adam, are introduced to the concept of original sin, that because of Adam, we are all born in this sinful state and all need God's grace in order to live differently. In chapter 6, we have another example, two of them actually, of this diatribe, of this way of arguing things. We had the one back in chapter 2. Paul is answering objections as though to an opponent. So these may be things that have been raised by people as arguments against what Paul is teaching, or he may be trying to preemptively answer the potential objections. So in other words, before they even come up in your mind, I'm going to tell you why that's not the way it is. The first one, the objection is that belief in this kind of grace from God might be an excuse to sin. But this is not just a change in our legal standing, not so we can just go on sinning without consequence. That's not what salvation is. We know that some people try to use it that way. But when we come to God, He's not just forgiving our sin, although God is, but it is also a change in character so that we don't want to go on sinning. And I would argue that if we're not feeling convicted of our sin, we need to examine our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Baptism becomes a symbolism, dying with Christ and rising a new creation with a new nature. We die to the old self and we live anew. So the water is a symbolic of the washing of the cleansing as well as the death and resurrection that we experience with Christ. 
The second diatribe talks about sin leads to death. We should not fool ourselves into thinking that sin is no longer really sin just because we aren't under the law. Now that we are under the control of the Spirit, of God's Holy Spirit, we don't need the law to tell us what is wrong. Our conscience, our conviction, our connection to God will tell us. And so we need to be listening and expecting to feel that conviction that leads us to repentance. Chapter 6, verse 23 is another key passage. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We move into chapter 7. In verses 1 through 6, we see an example from marriage. Just as a widow is free to marry, again, after the husband has died, we are free from participation in and obligation to the law because of Jesus' death. We have died to that. It's an interesting example that I feel like Paul chooses because the Mosaic law said that as long as a woman's husband was alive, um, she was not free to marry again. But once he died, she could. And so Jesus died so that we could be free from the law. He makes a real contrast in chapter 7 between life in the flesh and life in the spirit. In verses 7 through 12, we have yet another diatribe. The objection here is that the law is sin if it is opposed to the spirit. And the answer here is that by making some things prohibited, our sinful nature seems to want them more. But that doesn't make the rule itself sin. In verse 13 through 25, we have another diatribe. The good law brings death. Verses 14 through 24 describe a state of being in the flesh. And that should not be the present state of Christians. John Wesley had a lot to say about this, that Christians should not want to live in the flesh. We should want to live godly lives. We're trying to live into our salvation to become all that God can enable us to become. And we're supposed to cooperate with the Spirit of God to do that. A believer may revert to this state in a moment of extreme temptation, but it should not be a state in which we remain or a state in which we feel comfortable. We move into chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1 is another key verse. There is now for no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. For the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. I read verse 2 as well. But I'm a huge fan of this verse. The believer experiences conviction of sin, not condemnation for it. Because we are in Christ, the Holy Spirit will prick our conscience to the things that we're doing wrong, will make us feel bad about our behavior. But God does so in order to bring us to a state of repentance, but it doesn't condemn us. The relationship with God is not broken and over and unrepairable. It is the enemy who wants to rehearse our sins for us, who wants to make us feel condemned for our sin, and that we need to cultivate the ability to say, I'm not condemned, I'm convicted. I am a sinner saved by grace who is going on to perfection 
with Jesus Christ. My goal is to do better every day. I don't get it all right, but I'm not going to sit here and wallow. I'm going to confess it, repent of it, and seek to do better. We are enabled by the Spirit to experience this freedom from sin, but also to experience reassurance of the fact that we have been adopted by God. He's trying to make a statement about the permanency, the assurance with which we could know that we belong to God. We are children of God, not just servants or slaves. Now, sometimes Paul refers to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ, meaning we're supposed to be in Christ's service to the world. But we are children, beloved and received, sometimes disciplined, but in God's family. He goes further to say we are joint heirs with Jesus. If we remember in the Hebrew culture, the oldest son inherited more, usually a double portion. So if there were two sons, the estate, the oldest inherited two-thirds of the estate and the younger one-third. If there were a whole bunch, the oldest usually inherited at least half of the estate and then the rest was divided among the younger. But by calling us joint heirs with Jesus, He's saying we all inherit equally and fully. He even uses the term for God here of Abba. That is Aramaic for father, and it is a very familiar term. Um, Think in terms of a toddler running out to greet their father at the end of the day and yelling, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Um, Abba is that kind of um, familiar term. In verses 18 through, um, actually 17b through verse 30, we're told that we suffer in this world now because of sin, but that all of creation is experiencing labor pains. Um, This echoes Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, that as a result of the fall, a woman would give birth in pain. And so because of the fall, all of creation is still laboring for the day when all would be made right. And one day, all will be set free from the consequences of sin. The idea is that even the rest of creation has suffered because of sin being in the world. It mentions first fruits um, in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. Um, Christ is called the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning potential or promise. There was the festival of first fruits that we've heard about in, in our Old Testament reading, where they would bring shafts of wheat to be waved before the Lord. It referred to thanksgiving and recognition of the potential. This is part of the very early harvest. Then at Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, They brought the fulfillment of that. They brought bread. So the first fruit speaks to the potential, the promise that has been received that God will do what has been promised. In verse 26, we're told that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us when we are too weak to do so. Sometimes a sigh is enough of a prayer. I'm convinced that silence can be a prayer. I'm convinced that tears can be a prayer. Sometimes we don't even know what to say, but that the Spirit intercedes for us, prays for us. Chapter 8, verses 28 is another key verse. We know that all things work together for good 
for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. This is not saying that God does all that happens to us, nor is it calling all of those things good, but it is saying to us that God works to bring some good from it all. So whatever happens to us, pleasant or unpleasant, God will seek to bring some good out of it. Paul is going to use the word that is translated here, predestined. As a Methodist Christian, I don't believe that God has predestined folks. I believe God wants all to come to saving knowledge and draws all that we have free will to respond or not. I believe what God predetermined was the image of His Son that is intentional for all. God predestines that we should all come to Jesus and all be made like Him, but some will use their free will to reject that offer. We are, however, told that there is an ultimate triumph. We find that described in verses 31 through 39. God's love never fails us, nor does God fail to do what God has promised. Chapter 8, verses 31 is another key verse. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And then verses 37 and 38, of course, are key verses as well. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, not powers, not heights, not depth, not anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The only thing that can keep us from God is our decision to exercise our free will and reject God. There's no other power in all of creation that is strong enough to keep us from God if it is what we have decided to do. We're also told here that Jesus as well intercedes for us. So it's not just the Holy Spirit. Our Savior is praying for us. And then we move into chapter 9. Chapters 9 through 11 are going to address what all of this means specifically for the nation of Israel. Paul tells us very clearly he would trade his own inclusion in the kingdom of God if it meant that all of Israel would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. This is very similar to what Moses did in Exodus 32. Um, He would gladly die if it meant his people could live as God intended. In Paul's first argument, he says that not all of the descendants are chosen in Abraham's line. Mercy to some is not injustice to the rest. Because God is God, God sets the terms for mercy. He chose some of the descendants to be the avenue of his blessing. It didn't mean the others could not have followed and received that blessing. They just were not the ones chosen for it to come through. He quotes Malachi chapter 1, verse 3, and references Exodus 33, 19. Paul's use of the potter and clay metaphor is one that would have been very familiar. We see it in Isaiah 29, 16, Isaiah 45, 9 through 13, and Jeremiah 18, 6. Those who haven't yet come to Christ are currently objects of wrath, but they can become objects of mercy. Right now, they're not exercising their free will to choose this gift. That is a choice to put themselves at odds with what God wants to do. And Paul wants to urge them to choose 
this relationship and become recipients of God's mercy. He rejects the idea that God has predetermined some humans to destruction and others to salvation. And he quotes Isaiah 1, 9 and Hosea 2, 23 here. It's ironic that Gentiles who weren't seeking God's righteousness have found it in Christ, while many Jews who were seeking God's righteousness through the law reject it in Christ. Paul goes on to say that Jews are seeking a works righteousness through the law. They're trying to earn their right standing with God by obeying the law rather than doing so by faith. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14. The relationship of Christians to Jews has been and continues to be a very complicated relationship. Paul, as a Jew and as a believer in Christ, is working out for us on these pages of this letter how he believes God will handle this in relationship to the people of Israel now that the Messiah has come and they don't recognize him. I remind you that he writes this to the church at Rome, a church that he did not plant and has never visited. So he's trying to lay out his very complex theology in relationship to how Jews and Gentiles both are offered this gift through Jesus and what will happen to those who do or don't receive it. So we're kind of a recipient of watching all of this unfold. Um, So that takes us through chapter 9 in this particular part of our reading.